This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I thought that uh, as we are all preparing for our Pesach in a different way than we ever have in the past, and since we're spending quite a bit of time at home, this would be an, an opportune time for us to perhaps learn together to prepare some Divrei Torah, some Haggadah insights, some fascinating uh, commentaries by the various Mepharshim that we're going to discuss in order to share some interesting things with our family members and be inspired and inspire those who are going to be sitting around our Seder. So I'd like to begin with a very famous minhag, a minhag that many Ashkenazim participate in, one that has a number of different suggestions as to where the minhag came from, and in fact, why there are more than one approach to fulfilling this minhag. And that is the minhag of wearing a kittel. We know that many Ashkenazim wear a kittel, wear a white robe to the Seder. And the question is why? What's the motivation? What is that we're trying to accomplish when we wear a kittel? Rabbi Salavechik in his Agada Siach Agrid quotes two opinions. The first opinion he quotes is the Nitziv, Naftali Tzviyudami Barlin, the Rosh Hashiva of Volazhin. And the Nitziv comments that the reason why we wear a kittel is to serve as a Zeichra Korban Pesach. During the times of the Beis HaMikdash, when we merited to have a Beis HaMikdash, when we merited to have the Zuchus to be able to have a Korban Pesach, so when we eat the Korban Pesach, we're eating food from Mishulchan Gavoa. We're eating food from the Nizbech of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We slaughtered, we sacrificed as a carbon the Korban Pesach. We bring home the Korban Pesach to be able to be consumed at our Pesach Seder. We're eating food from the Melch Malchei Amlochi, Mishulchan Gavoa, from the table from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Says the Nitziv, if you're going to eat food from a prestigious individual like HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then we need to dress the part. We need to dress royally. We're eating from the Melech Malchem Lachim, Meshulchan Gavor, from the Mizbeach. And so therefore, during the times of the Beis HaMikdash, you'd have to dress as a Melech. You'd have to dress as a royal individual to, to uh, satisfy the requirement or to, as we said, dress the part of eating food, Meshulchan Gavor. And so therefore, says the Nitziv, unfortunately, even though nowadays we do not have a Beis HaMikdash, and unfortunately we do not have a Korban Pesach, we try to do a number of things to remind us and to commemorate that which we are missing. That's what we are longing for. And so therefore, says the Nitziv, we wear a kittel, we wear a long white robe, something that is royal, something that is regal, to remind us that were we to have been zochet, to sit around the table during the times of the Beis HaMikdash, we'd have the opportunity to consume, to eat the Korban Pesach together, Meshulchan Gavor from the Mizbeach. And so therefore, it serves as a reminder, as a commemoration of that which we're missing out on because unfortunately we do not have a Beis HaMikdash. Rabbi Moshe Salavichik, Rabbi Salavichik's father, comments and gives an alternative approach. And he says, the reason why we wear a kittel is in order to pique the curiosity of the children, as the Gemara says, in order to get the juices flowing of our children. We want them to become inquisitive. We want them to ask any questions about anything unusual that they notice at the Seder, because we hope that that will lead to some more meaningful questions about our Mesorah, about that which we're trying to pass down to them at the Pesach Seder. And so therefore, we will have somebody come out from their bedroom. They will sit at the table wearing a white robe, which under, under normal circumstances, they would never sit and wear. And when the children see that they're father, the one who's running the Seder, wears a kittel, they'll ask the obvious question, what's going on here? And the father will use that as a platform, will utilize that as an opportunity 
to be able to pique that children's curiosity, to get those juices flowing, as we said, and to ultimately get them to begin to talk about the Seder. What's interesting about both of these approaches and what Rabbi Salavichek highlights is that based on these two different approaches, they serve as the basis for two different minhagim, two different customs that many people have about whether or not to wear a kittel. In some families, you will notice that only the head of the household wear a kittel. In other sadarim, you will notice that every uh, adult male that is married who has a kittel from when they got married will wear a kittel at the Seder. What's the reason why we have two different minhagim? So it's possible that it's based on these two different approaches. If you follow Rabbi Moshe Salavechik that it's all about piquing the children's curiosity, well, you don't need to have every single male wear a kittel. It would certainly be enough and sufficient to have the head of the house of the balabas, the one who's running the Seder, wear a kittel. He'll come to the table. The children will notice and they will see that in fact there's somebody wearing something that's a little bit unusual, that's not normally worn on a Shabbos or on a Yontif, and they'll ask the questions that we want them to ask, and so therefore it will be certainly sufficient for the head of the household to wear a kittel. However, if you hold like the Nitziv, who says that it's all about Deichel and Pesach, well, that's not going to be enough for the head of the household to wear a kittel. Every male who's going to sit around that table, who during the times of the Beis HaMingdash would have worn a kittel, would have, would have eaten the carbon Pesach, would have also had to dress royally, and so therefore now that we're doing the same thing would be true. They would have to follow that same custom and they would all have to wear it. And you will notice that some households and some families only the head of the household because they are subscribing to Rav Moshe Salavechik piquing the children's curiosity. And others, everybody wears a kittel, they're subscribing to the Nitziv because it's serving as a commemoration as a Zeichel Korban Pesach that we have just mentioned. We say in our Kiddush in Kaddish, we say, Biyom Chag Hamatzos Hazet. If you'll take a look in the Torah, the Torah always refers to that this holiday of Pesach as Chag HaMatzot. Yet, if you take a look in the Mishnah, in the Gemara, you will always notice that for the most part it's referred to as Chag HaPesach. In fact, the Mesechta that we learn is Psachim. Why is it that the Torah refers to Chag HaPesach as Chag HaMatzot? Why is it that Hashem, in dictating to Moshe Rabbeinu, insisted on referring to it as Chag HaMatzot? And yet we as Chazal, we, the arbiters of our Mesorah, why is it that it's referred to as Pesach? The Kedush HaSlevi provides a fantastic insight based on a Gemara in Brachos. We're all familiar with the Gemara in Brachos where the Gemara tells us that both HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Klal Yisrael wear tefillin. In HaKadosh Baruch Hu's tefillin, the words Ata Echad, V'Shemcha Echad, Umikam Cha Yisrael Go Echad Ba'aretz. Praising the Jewish people, sharing how lucky Kiviachal he feels that the Jewish people have chosen him and that he feels how lucky it is that they are his unique nation, the Am HaNivchar. Yet we know, in our tefillin, we have the words, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. We praise, we are so grateful that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is our God and we are his nation, praising HaKadosh Baruch Hu for having chosen us. And the Gemara explains that that is the beautiful relationship that exists between Klal Yisrael and Hashem. Hashem feels incredibly privileged to be the God of the Jewish people, and the Jewish people feel incredibly privileged that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has chosen them. With that Gemara, the Kedush Levi suggests the following, that when Hashem calls this Yontev Chag HaMatzos, 
It's an opportunity for Hashem to praise the Jewish people for the incredible emunah and bitachon that they've displayed. After all, we know that the reason why we have matzah is because when HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructed the Jewish people to depart, to leave Mitzrayim, they didn't delay for a moment. The minute HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructed them to leave, they left. So much so that they didn't even have enough time for the bread on their backs to rise. And so therefore HaKadosh Baruch Hu insists on referring to this holiday as Chag HaMatzos because the Torah is trying to convey and praise the Jewish people for the incredible demonstration of emunah and bitachon. On the flip side, Chazal insisted we call it Chag HaPesach, Psachim, because we are praising HaKadosh Baruch Hu for instructing the Malam to overlook, to pass over, literally, the houses of the Jewish people, seeing the Agudas Ezov, seeing the blood that had been painted on the doorpost, and ensuring that no Jewish blood was shed, no Jews were to have died. Praising HaKadosh Baruch Hu for saving the Jewish people, and subsequently liberating them from Mitzrayim. And so therefore says the Kiddush Levi. An unbelievable thing that Chag HaMatzos and Chag HaPesach is once again an opportunity to demonstrate and to highlight the beautiful relationship that exists between the Ribbon Shalom and Klai Yisrael. HaKadosh Baruch Hu feels incredibly privileged. The way he does when he has his tefillin to be the God of the Jewish people who demonstrated this incredible level of emunah. While Klai Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad feeling so lucky that Hashem has chosen us and at the same time praising Hashem with the words Chag HaPesach for passing over us, for saving us, for liberating us, for serving as that intervener, for being able to save and liberate the Jewish people and performing all of those miracles on our behalf. The Pasuk in Tehillim tells us, Sur Tov. First we are to remove the evil before we then do good. And with that as an introduction, the Avdei Nezir, the Sakachavar, asks the obvious question. Why do we do Kadesh before Orchatz? We're not yet eating bread, so the normal course of events that we normally do doesn't necessarily have to play into this. But why don't we do Orchatz and then Kadesh? Sur Meirah, let's remove the Tumah from our hands, and then Asay Tov, and then we can be Mekadesh the day, we can thank the Levi the day with Kedusha. Why not do Orchatz and then do Kadesh? And the Avnei Nezer suggests an unbelievable insight that I want to share with you today. And that is that we are mimicking the chesed that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did for us. We are highlighting something that Hashem did for us, the tremendous chesed He provided for us, and we highlight that by Dafka doing Kadesh before Orchatz. What chesed am I referring to? So the Avinizer points out something incredible. He says, we all know that we are on the level of Memtah Shari Tumah. One more level, and we would never have been meriting, we would never have been privileged to be redeemed from Egypt. And yet HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't delay for a moment. He doesn't wait for us to somehow miraculously become Tahar. But he says, I've got to get them out of Egypt while they're still Tomei. I can't wait. I can't delay. I can't hope and maybe see what's going to materialize. No, I'm going to take them out even though they may not be Zoha just yet. Even if they're Tomei, even if they're impure, even if they've been surrounded by this incredibly immoral an ethical, debased society, I'm not going to delay for even one more second. I'm going to liberate them immediately. Therefore, says the Avnei's Nezer, that's why we do Kadesh before Orchatz. We say the same way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't wait for us to try to be Matahe ourselves because he was concerned, so to speak, that we would never get to that point. Were we to get to the 50th level, we'd be lost forever. We too don't wait to Orchatz. We don't wait to first become Tahar before we sanctify the day. We jump on the chance to be able to do so. We initiate the day. We sanctify the holiness of the day even before we are Matahe 
on ourselves to call attention to and to highlight that incredible chesed that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did on our behalf. And so therefore we imitate with that very same approach. Karpas. Karpas. Karpas, if you will notice, is one of two dippings that takes place during the Seder. We dip karpas into salt water and we dip maror into haroses. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs provides an, an amazing insight as to what the symbolism is of these two dippings, karpas into salt water and maror into haroses. And he points out that if you take a look at the story of Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim, you will notice there are actually two dippings there as well. Actually, at the bookends, once at the very, very early part of the story and one at the very end of the story. The one at the beginning of the story I'm referring to, of course, is when it came to the brothers taking the Ksonas Pasim, taking the multicolored coat of Yosef and dipping it into blood, goat's blood, in order to bring to their father, in order to convince him that Yosef had been ravaged by an animal, by a wild animal. That is the first dipping. We also know there's a second dipping. And that second dipping takes place at the very end of Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim when they took the hyssop, they dipped it in blood and by the instructions of Moshe Rabbeinu through Hashem to all of Klal Yisrael, they painted the doorposts so the Malach HaMavis would know not to come into those houses during Makas Bechoros. Rabbi Sachs points out that those two dippings correspond to the two dippings that we have of Karpas and Maror. The Karpas, which is itself is sweet, is dipped into salt and becomes sour. Conversely, the maror, which is itself bitter, is dipped into haroses and it has some of that bitterness removed. How does that correlate to the story of Yosef and his brothers at the beginning and the hyssop at the end? So I'm going to quote to you the words of Rabbi Sachs. And he says these two acts remind us that freedom which is sweet becomes sour when we use it to mistreat others. However, slavery, which is bitter, is sweetened when collective suffering becomes human solidarity and thus a prelude to freedom. In other words, says Rabbi Sachs, you can take the karpas, which is sweet, and dip it into something sour, and ultimately it can make it disgusting. You can have the brothers who were free, but when they mistreat one another, when there's a lack of cohesiveness, there's a lack of unity, freedom can turn into something very, very bitter. On the flip side, you can be enslaved and dip that hyssop when you're enslaved and you can make something sweet. You could still be enslaved and not yet have been liberated, but you can take that maror which demonstrates the bitterness slavery, but when dipped in charoses, you can make it sweet. You can be enslaved, but if you are unified, that entire experience can be that much more sweet. And so therefore Rabbi Sachs says that the same way that we had a dipping at the beginning, where life was seemingly great, it was free, and yet it could be made bitter, and that is highlighted by the karpas dipped into the salt water making it sour, the end of the story ends where you can be enslaved still. You're still in Mitzrayim. You haven't yet been freed. You haven't yet been redeemed. But you can have the morrow, which is bitter. But when unified like they were in Mitzrayim, it can be dipped in haroses. It can be dipped in something sweet. And that experience can be made that much greater. There's an obvious question when you think about yachatz. And that is how in the world... Can one item represent two different things? How can it be that the matzah at the beginning of the Seder, 
which is broken. It's lechem oni, as the Gemara Pesachim tells us. It's a, us, it's a prusa. You have to make it in one piece because no oni, no poor person will eat it all at one time. They'll save for later. It's oppressive bread. It's the beginning of the Seder where we're going to talk about avadim hayinu lefaro b'mitzrayim. How can the matzah at the beginning of the Seder represent something that is so horrible, that is so unpleasant, slavery, and yet when we eat the matzah way later on, after Magid, after we've been liberated, now it's the bread of freedom. How can one object represent two different things? I saw another beautiful insight of Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, which I think is not only a beautiful insight into understanding the matzah, but I think it's a very timely insight into what we are experiencing during this very, very unusual period of our lives. And Rabbi Sachs says the following. He says, The difference between freedom and slavery lies not in the quality of the bread that we eat, but in the state of mind in which we eat it. In other words, Rabbi Sachs says life, and as I'm sure we can all appreciate certainly now, life is all about perspective. You can have the same matzah, but the way in which the lens you see that matzah through can have a dramatically different impact on how you feel. And so at the beginning of the Seder, as we begin the trudge in the trenches of Maschil Beginusu Masayim B'Shevach, we start with the negative. We're going to talk about Avadim Ayinu L'Faro B'Mitzrayim. Our perspective, our lens is through the lens of Avadim Ayinu of slavery. And therefore we will look at that object that's unchanged through the lens of slavery. Yet later on, when we feel that redemption, that liberation, that freedom, that Chirus, from Mitzrayim, that very same object can be perceived and can be looked at as an object of freedom. And it's an important Mr. Haskell, as we continue to endure this challenging time, to understand that everything that we see is going going to be seen through a specific perspective, through a specific lens that we will determine. When we are with our children and we're in our homes, are we continuing to complain, to fetch, to feel as though this is never going to end? Or do we use this as an opportunity to be able to spend more quality time with our children under circumstances that we would never choreograph on our own? Do we go ahead and we say, is this ever going to end and feel as though we're getting that cabin fever? Or do we jump at the opportunity to learn, to grow, to have more introspection and to have some reflection? I'll repeat what Rabbi Sachs says when it comes to the singular object, the matzah, that seems to be looked at and perceived in two different ways. That the difference between freedom and slavery lies not in the quality of the bread that we eat, but in the state of mind in which we eat it. Moving on now to Halach Ma'anya. Halach Ma'anya is a very interesting statement. If you look at the Halach Ma'anya, so we say that anybody that's interested in eating should jump at the chance. Come on, join us. Anybody that wants the Korban Pesach, feel free to participate. Yet if you think about this statement of Halach Ma'anya, there's a lot of problems. There are logistical problems and there are halachic problems. Rabbi Salavechik in his Agado, once again in the Siach Grid comments, there's a halachic impediment here that would preclude us from being able to really invite anybody to our Seder. After all, were we to be living during the times of the Beis HaMikdash, the people that would be included in your group, in your Chabura, needed to be decided already many, many, many hours earlier when the Korban Pesach was shechted. The halacha requires that you need to have in mind and you need to tell the Kohen that the people that you want to be part of your Seder, to be part of your Korban Pesach, and you give them a list. You can't just invite people the night of the Pesach Seder to your Seder and allow them to participate and consume the Korban Pesach. All of that had to be prearranged 
prior to the Yontif beginning. So how do we have the right? What is the halachic justification to be able to invite people? And even more so, let's be honest, it seems like a disingenuous and insincere, a very inauthentic type of invitation. We've already done Kadesh, we've done Orchatz, we've done Karpas, and we've done Yachatz. We've been sitting around our Pesach Seder for close to 20-25 minutes. Our doors are closed, everybody are in their home, and now we're inviting somebody to our Seder? Now we're saying anybody that wants to come eat can join us? Seems to be a little bit insincere, seems to be very inauthentic. And so what exactly are we saying when we say these words, Anybody that wants to join us can do so. I'd like to suggest two answers. One in the name of Rabbi Salavechik, who asked this question, and another in the name of Rav Yaakov Bender, the Rosh Yeshiva of Darchei Torah in, in Farakaway. Rabbi Salavechik explains, based on a Shas concept known as Mashakona Eved Konarabo. We know that there is a rule if you're an Evid Knani, if you're a Knanite slave that is owned by a Jew, anything that comes into the possession of an Evid Knani, anything that comes into possession of this slave, by virtue of being owned by its master, the anything that comes into their possession automatically becomes the belonging of the master. So if an Evid Knani walks down the street and finds something valuable, he picks it up, the minute he picks it up, it all of a sudden becomes in the possession of its owner. And so therefore, explains Rabbi Salavechik, if we were still slaves, we would not be able to invite anybody to our Seder. By virtue of the fact that we can hypothetically invite somebody to our table, to our Seder, to our house, is an expression of cherus. You can only invite somebody to your home if you have a home. You can only invite somebody to your Seder if you have a Seder. And so therefore, by virtue of the fact that we are capable of inviting others to our home, we are able to express and demonstrate the cherus that Baruch Hashem we all are privileged to enjoy. And so therefore, it's not that we're actually inviting anybody formally. It's not meant to be a literal invitation, but rather the Baal Haggadah, the author of the Haggadah, utilizes these phrases in order to express our freedom. That is the explanation of Rabbi Salavichik. However, Rabbi Bender provides a beautiful explanation in his Agadah, which I certainly recommend, in which he highlights what exactly our role is, what our objective, what the goal is of the Pesach Seder. And Rabbi Bender explains that the Pesach Seder is not meant simply to tell over the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. But rather, the Pesach Seder is the platform, is the environment in which we have the privilege to convey to our children Jewish identity. Jewish identity begins with Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The Jewish people became a formal nation the minute we were liberated from Mitzrayim and certainly once we were given the Torah shortly thereafter. And so therefore, while the story may begin by telling over the, the, the Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, it doesn't end there. We have to use the opportunity of the Seder to share all the basic tenets, all the fundamental values of our belief system. One of those values is taking care of and being considerate to and being sensitive, not just to our nuclear family, but constantly being aware of our surroundings and wanting to care for the Jewish people at large. And so therefore, we sit at the Pesach Seder and we want to convey and we convey to our children through the expression of we share with our children, it's not enough for us to enjoy the Seder ourselves, 
but we have to be constantly be thinking about other people. Rabbi Bender highlights that there is a, a beautiful Rambam that may suggest or help to understand what otherwise would be a very difficult set of psukim. In Parshas Emor, the Torah famously uh, goes through all of the Mo'adim, all of the Yomim Tovim. From Rosh Hashanah to Suk- Yom Kippur to Sukkot, Pesach and, and Shavuos. And yet in the middle of the sequence of all of these Yomim Tovim, the Torah seemingly throws in randomly a two mitzvos, the mitzvah of Peah and the mitzvah of Leket. Two of the mitzvahs of Tzedakah where you need to leave a corner of your field for the Aniyim, where you need to make sure to, if you've forgotten some of the sheaves of stalks of wheat that you've dropped, you have to leave them for the poor, seemingly out of nowhere. Here you have all the parshios of the Moadim, and then it's kind of stuck in the middle, these two mitzvahs of Tzedakah. Why don't we place those two mitzvahs of Tzedakah with all the other mitzvahs of Tzedakah? Why not mention it when it comes to talking about not charging ribis in Mishpatim, or making sure that we're taking care of loans, etc.? Why does it mention it here in the context of the Yomim Tovim? The Rambam, quotes Rav Bender, in Hilchos Yom Tov, Paragimu Halachi Ches tells us that if you want to know what the proper way to celebrate Yom Tov, it's not necessarily by buying the most fancy outfits, and it's not necessarily by having the most lavish of foods. You want to know the greatest way to have Simchas Yom Tov, it's by sharing what you have with the indigent, by sharing what you have with the lonely, by sharing what you have with the destitute, with the impoverished. If you want to know how to truly celebrate Simchas Yom Tif, it's not by keeping it to yourself, but it's by sharing it with others. Says Rav Bender, that perhaps may be why the Torah specifically, intentionally includes some of the mitzvahs of Tzedakah in the context of our Mo'adim. Because HaKadosh Baruch was trying to convey that at the end of the day, if you really want to have Simchas Yom Tif, like I've enumerated in the different psukim in Parshas Emor, the only way to, to have true Simchas Yom Tif is going to be by giving to others, by including others, by being sensitive to others, by caring about others, by thinking about others, by looking out for others. And that, says Rav Bender, is what we're trying to accomplish in Halach Ma'anya. Once again, you certainly can't invite anybody to your Seder at this point for the halachic reasons we've mentioned and for the practical reasons that we've mentioned. But what we're trying to do is to communicate and to pass on the Mesorah to our children of what makes a Jew. And what makes a Jew is starts with the story of leaving Egypt, but it continues with all the values that we try to pass on to them. One of which is caring and thinking about and being sensitive and considerate to others. And so therefore, though we're not actually formally inviting anybody to our Seder, we will nevertheless declare this as part of our mission statement of what it means to be a Jew. Manashtana. Manashtana. I will preface and make the disclaimer, I'm not a huge um, gematria person. However, I saw a beautiful gematria that I think is such a powerful lesson about chinuch for parents and for grandparents to children that I feel compelled to share with you this amazing insight of Rav Shlomo Aviner. The word ma is the quintessential, the paradigmatic example of a question. If you were to ask most people, What's the word that is most frequently used to introduce a question in Hebrew? I think it's safe to assume that the word ma would be that question. The gematria of the word ma is 45. If I were to ask you, what is the most commonly used word in Hebrew for a human being? You could say ish, but I think at the end of the day, the word that would be most commonly frequently used is the word adam. The word adam, once again, is 45. 
Rabbi, Rabbi Avinir explains as follows, and listen carefully because it's so incredible. Rabbi Avinir explains that what is distinguishing, what distinguishes a human being from all of the other Brios, from all of the other creations of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is the ability to ask questions. What defines a human being, an Adam, is, a, is, his, is his ability to introduce a question with the word Ma. You take your dog out, he's going to take him for a walk. He doesn't say, no, I'm not really in the mood right now. You ask, you, do you ask him if he wants to, if he's in the mood to eat? He doesn't really question what you give to him. A human being is the only one that has the ability to be inquisitive, has the ability to question. That is a distinguishing quality of our intellect, the ability to question, to inquire, to posit, and to think about the world at large. And says Rabbi Avner, because that's a distinguishing quality of the human being, we as Jews who are not afraid of the tough questions, we're the only religion that's not afraid of the tough questions, needs to use the Seder, the Seder which is the root of our emuna, the Seder which is the, the, the environment that facilitates our ability to pass on the, the values to the next generation. We need to use and we need to capitalize on this unique quality of human beings. We need to give our children the opportunity to ask questions, not just because the Torah says, and that's one of the prescribed ingredients unique to the midst of Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim, but because at the end of the day, and this is scary, but Rabbi Avinir says the following, if we don't give our children the opportunity to ask questions, it isn't going to deter them and it's not going to stop them from asking. They'll just stop asking you. They'll start asking other people in the streets. They'll ask people who are certainly less capable of answering the questions with the proper ashkafos, with the proper approaches that you'd like for them to hear. And so therefore, the one or two nights, depending on whether you live in Eretz Yisrael or in Chertzlaretz, when you have a captivated audience, you have your children with bated breath, listening to every word that comes out of your mouth. If you don't utilize that as an opportunity to be able to provide for them that chance to ask all the questions on their mind, small, big, basic, superficial, really doesn't matter. But if you don't cultivate, if we don't cultivate that open environment for our children to ask questions, they're not going to stop asking the questions. They're just going to stop asking you. We're all familiar with the paragraphs. If you'll take a look towards the end of the paragraph of Avadim Hayinu, you will notice some strange statements by the author of the Haggadah. The author of the Haggadah tells us, We have a tremendous understanding, right? We're elders, we have a lot of life experience. We are still obligated to perform the mitzvah of Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim. Very strange statement. We normally do not exempt Tamidah Chachamim from mitzvos. Tamidah Chachamim are obligated to learn Torah, even if they know a lot of Torah. Tamidah Chachamim are obligated to put on tefillin, even though they know a lot of Torah. They're obligated to put on sittis. They have to sit in a sukkah and they have to shake a lulav. They have to eat the matzah. Just because you happen to know a lot of Torah, you have a lot of life experience, you have a lot of intellect, and you have an ability to discern and analyze situations, shouldn't exempt you from a mitzvah. The Baal Haggadah, the author of the Haggadah, seems to think otherwise initially. Initially, he seems to say that even if you're a Tamil Chacham, you're still obligated, as if to suggest that he thought for a moment that maybe because you're a Tamil Chacham, you shouldn't be obligated. What was the thought process? Why would anybody think that just because you're a Talmud Chacham, 
you wouldn't be obligated in a mitzvah. One has nothing to do with the other. And secondly, the grammar of the paragraph also seems to be a little bit difficult. One of the last sentences say, Mitzvah later l'saper, b'etzias mitzrayim. It's a mitzvah on us to tell, and here's where it's a little strange, b'etzias mitzrayim. In the story of Yitzias Mitzrayim, I'm not a grammarian, but if I were to have written this sentence, I would have said, Mitzvah Leinu Lesaper, Es Yitzias Mitzrayim. It is a mitzvah on us to tell about the story, Al Yitzias Mitzrayim. Why am I saying Mitzvah Leinu Lesaper, Be Yitzias Mitzrayim, in the story, seems to be grammatically inaccurate. Rabbi Salavajic suggests that one has to understand, and what the Baal HaGad is trying to convey is what exactly the mitzvah of Sipri Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is. You see, one could have argued, one could have thought that perhaps the mitzvah of Sipri Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is simply to accumulate knowledge. It's informationally focused. It's our job to pass on to the next generation all of the details and everything that they need to know so that they can pass it on to the next generation afterwards. And so therefore, if the whole focus, if the whole basis of the mitzvah is simply to impart knowledge, then if you're a Tamil Chacham, maybe you should have been exempt. However, says the Baal Haggadah, not so. The mitzvah of Sipri Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is not about simply imparting knowledge. It's part of it, but it's not the whole mitzvah. The real basis, the crux of the mitzvah is experiential. Each and every year, as the Rambam says, the whole purpose, the whole focus of Sipri Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is not simply to impart knowledge, but to experience a new liberation each and every year. And says Rabbi Salavajik, that's why, although you might have thought, says the Baal Haggadah, that if you're a Tamil Chacham, you should be exempt because maybe it's informationally focused, says the Baal Haggadah, every Tamil Chacham, every Novon, every Zakein, is obligated to experience that re-liberation, that re-redemption again. And that, says Rabbi Salavitchik, is why it says, Mitzvah Leinu Lesaper, Be Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The mitzvah is on us to be in the story. We aren't telling a story, we're getting in the story. The Baal is conveying specifically, intentionally, with the words, Mitzvah Leinu Lesaper, Be Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, that it's not enough to tell a narrative, it's not enough to tell a story about a nation, but it's about us. This story is about us, and we need to have our children feel it, and we have to have them imbibe it, we have to have them ingest the story, it has to be part of who they are and who they're going to become. And that suggests Rabbi Salavajik is why Mitzvah Aleinu Lesaper Be Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. I want to share one more vart for with you today, and uh, perhaps we'll have another episode sharing some additional Haggadah insights in the future. And that is on the Arba Banim. If you take a look at the Arba Banim, you will notice that the author of the Haggadah seems to add some additional words. The author of the Haggadah, which is a little bit strange, introduces the Arba Banim with Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu, and then proceeds to go ahead and say, Arba Banim Dibra Torah, Echad Chacham, Ve'echad Rasha, Ve'echad Tam, Ve'echad She'en Yodel why doesn't the Haggadah just simply say, Why does it have to be that before each one of the sons, the Baal Haggadah, the author of the Haggadah, feels compelled to introduce each one of those sons with the word Echad? This is not my question, but once again, from a fantastic Haggadah that I'm plugging over Bender, he asks the question. 
And as a preeminent Menchanech would do, he suggests a powerful answer that is not only appropriate for Menchanechim, but is also appropriate for parents as they raise their children. And that is the following. It is very easy and very natural, and oftentimes we are inclined to treat each one of our children in the same way. Each one of our children go to the same schools and the same camps, and if we punish one kid one way, we have to punish the next kid the same way, and if we reward one kid one way, we have to reward the other kid the other way, and if you're a mechanech, oftentimes you peg a younger sibling to be like their older ch- their brother or their older sister, and we just have a natural, it's, it's, it's convenient, it's easy to simply lump family members children, siblings together, it's very easy to be able to do so. Says Rav Bender, the author of the Haggadah, the Baal Haggadah, is correcting that very basic mistake in Chinuch. Just the opposite. Each one of our children, each one of our Tamidim, our Tamidos, have to be treated as individual. Echad Chacham, Ve'echad Rasha, Ve'echad Tam, Ve'echad She'enu De'elisho. Whether you're the Chachim, you're the wise one, or you're the wicked one who yet is still at the Seder, you're the more simple child, or you don't even know how to ask the question, don't lump all of those children together. Each one of those children have a separate set of circumstances. Each one of those children have different needs. Each one of those children have different interests. And if all you're going to do is peg each of those children to be one lump, four children, yeah, I have four kids, I treat all all four children the same way, that is a basic fundamental mistake that could really mess up a child. Says Rav Bender, Echad Chacham, the Echad Rasha, the Echad Tam, the Echad She'en Yodel Lisho. No, you've got to treat each and every child individually. You have to find and identify the unique set of circumstances that speak to them. You have to be able to capitalize on the strengths that each one of them have. You have to be able to recognize and to help them become the greatest versions and maximize their potential to become the best versions of themselves. And it is for that reason, says Rav Bender, that the, the Baal Haggadah, the author of the Haggadah, introduces each one individually to give each one of them their, their own attention, their own recognition, and their own acknowledgement. I've enjoyed learning with you so far, and I look forward to sharing some additional Haggadah insights in the coming days. Have a wonderful evening.